Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. The word of God. Please be seated. How was your Thanksgiving? What comes to mind? I hope you had a wonderful time with people that you care about enjoying good food. If something negative comes to your mind, though, you would not be alone. I saw this comment on Facebook from a friend calling Thanksgiving pig out day, followed by bargain binging, followed by remorse. I hope that was not your experience, but if you think about the dish that burned or the hurtful comments someone made or something else that didn't quite turn out the way that you'd hoped, you wouldn't be alone. The, the other night I was putting our three-year-old Eleanor to bed and she was sure that there were dinosaurs in her room. So I told her, you don't have to be afraid. God is with you. And she looked at me and she said, God isn't with me. God died. And I thought somehow she got through Good Friday and Holy Silent Sabbath, but she missed Easter Sunday. It's called the, the negativity bias. It's the idea that negative things stick in our brain more than positive things, even of the same emotional intensity. It's why we can hear positive comment, positive comment, positive comment, and be, eh. And the one negative comment say, it's true, I'm a failure. Or it's why we have to work so much harder for our brains to look for the good. Our hearts are saying, look here, look at the good. And our brains are saying, no, I need to look at this bad right over here. Dr. John Gottman, uh, research, relationship researcher, coined the five to one ratio. He says, in conflict, successful couples have five positive interactions for every one negative interaction. Any less than that, and you increase your probability of divorce. So it's not just equal, positive, negative. No, five to one, and successful couples outside of conflict have a 20 to one positive to negative ratio. A barrage of negative input can, can affect you even hours later. In a study published in the Harvard Business Review, participants were divided into two groups. The one group was shown three minutes of negative news stories in the morning. The other group saw three minutes of res resilience stories. They took a survey six to eight hours later, and the group that had seen the news stories, the negative news stories for three minutes, were 27% more likely to say that their day had been unhappy. According to data scientist Litaru, who assessed emotional tone of articles from 1945 till 2005, the way we re even report the news has progressively gotten gloomier since the 1970s. Now you might say to me, well, Pastor, that's just because there's more bad things happening now since the 1970s. Is that true? 
Most of us would say yes. In 2016, a survey by YouGov found that 58% of people around the world thought the world was getting worse, and only 11% around the world thought it was getting better. In the United States, we're even more pessimistic. 65% of people think the world is getting worse, and only 6% think it's getting better. Author Steven Pinker would argue against our intuitive sense. For example, since the 1970s, the rate of people living in extreme poverty, the number of people living in extreme poverty has been falling. The number of people, the green here in the chart, not living in poverty, extreme poverty, has been rising. The percentage of people around the world dying violent deaths is the lowest yet. That's our time compared to several thousand years ago. Norwegian scientist Johan Galtung pointed out that if the newspaper came out every 50 years instead of every day or every, I don't know, minute or two, it's a new, new news story, if it came out every 50 years, it wouldn't report the latest tragedy or the setback, but it would report an increase in life expectancy for people around the world. So, some of us may feel a little unsettled with Pinker's emphasis that the world today is a safer and more peaceful place. It may even go against our worldview or challenge our faith. Growing up, I got excited about reports that earthquakes were becoming more frequent and more intense, and the world was more chaotic than ever before. Why? Because it meant Jesus was coming soon, right? It was proof to me of this reality in the lyrics of the old heritage singer song, this old world I know can't last much longer. So this sense of fear and excitement is a great way to stir people up for short-term action, but it's not a great way to sustainable spiritual growth. If your, faith is if your faith is wrapped up more and more in things becoming worse, then that's what you'll be looking for. You may even be disappointed when they don't. The chapter many people turn to in the Bible to say that things are getting worse and worse is Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus himself says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this might, must take place, but the end is not yet. Matthew 24, verse 6. Instead of highlighting the bad news, Jesus said that the end will come when God's good news goes throughout the world. It's hard for us to turn our eyes away from the bad news. We have this negativity bias, and we see the bad everywhere. The other night, I was walking with my husband and our three-year-old and our one-year-old, and in our neighborhood, we saw a kitty cat on the side of the road. Now, our one-year-old, Eric, was sure the kitty cat was sleeping, but our three-year-old got it. And for the next few days, she talked about that poor dead kitty cat that we saw on the side of the road. Now, as parents, we use this as a wonderful opportunity to make sure she knows not to run in the road so that does not become her fate. 
Our brains highlight the negative to help keep us safe. Don't let that happen to you. Don't let that happen to me. In many cases, it would be foolish to ignore negative news that we don't like. A prime example of this is caring for the environment. We need to know what's happening so we can know what choices to make, right? But often, our tendency to focus on the bad can cause other problems. If you've ever been driving in the freeway and you notice the traffic stops completely and then you get up to wherever it stops and there is nothing blocking the way, the accident is on the other side of the road. It's called rubbernecking and it's one of the leading causes of accidents. People paying attention to the bad news, ending up in a bad situation. In the spring of 2020, the term uh, the term doom scrolling became popular. Doom scrolling, what is it? It's the tendency to continue scrolling through your phone, reading bad news without the ability to stop or step back. We're unable to turn off input that depresses us or slows us down. 2,000 years ago, the followers of Jesus in Philippi had the same negativity bias. There was a lot going wrong in their world. They were experiencing persecution. Their beloved Paul himself was under house arrest in Rome, likely facing execution. And their church family, where they would turn to for support and encouragement, was mired in conflict. The infighting had gotten so bad that in this letter, Paul names names. He urges two female leaders to work it out for the sake of the church and the mission and the gospel. And if you missed Pastor Bev's sermon two weeks ago, you need to go back and listen to it. It's into this context that Paul says, rejoice in Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, not because of your circumstances, but in the Lord, the object and foundation of our joy. And if you missed Pastor Devo's sermon last week, you need to go back and listen to it. Today, Paul gives us two more instructions and a promise. Two more instructions and a promise. In the midst of all the bad news, Paul says, finally, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Look for the good. Notice how he repeats the word whatever. It would be easy for the persecuted Philippians to write off the society around them as going to hell in a handbasket. It would be easy for them to reject anything outside of the church as being tainted with evil. But Paul doesn't qualify his whatever. He doesn't say whatever Christian music or whatever Christian books or whatever Christian art, etc. The larger world is still God's world. So whatever is all-encompassing, in his summary statement of the six virtues listed, he makes it even more clear. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, in other words, if anything is best and good in and of itself, or if anything is praised by people, pay attention to it. Look for the good. The fact that Paul is listing virtues itself is an affirmation of the best of surrounding culture. You see, list-making was a common practice of Greek philosophers. 
Two of the words he lists here are only used here in the entire New Testament, lovely and admirable. Paul is drawing from the best of the culture surrounding him and affirming its search for the best. This practice continues today. I would love you to raise your hand if you are a Rotarian or you've ever been part of the Rotary Club. Can you, where are you? Some of you, okay, very good. So the Rotary Club continues this tradition in a different way of making these lists. Uh, back from 1943, the four-way test says, is it the truth? Is it fair to all concerned? Will it build goodwill and better friendships? And will it be beneficial to all concerned? This is an example of one of these virtue lists, right? That was so popular in, in the time of the Greeks that Paul draws on. Paul is encouraging us to look for the good wherever we can find it, not only in our in-group or our acceptable categories. This becomes especially difficult when we are in conflict or when, when we consider someone an opponent. It's easy to score points in a debate. It's a lot harder to listen and pay attention to where you're, you're, the person you're in conflict is coming from and what perhaps real concerns they have that need to be addressed. In conflict, often, instead of looking for the good, we start uh, we start assuming the worst. I'm so grateful to be part of a team here at the La Sierra University Church where we assume the best. And our former lead pastor, Pastor Chris, she loved to ask, what is the most generous interpretation? I love that question. What is the most generous interpretation? In a different setting, years ago, I was in conflict with a coworker. And I found myself assuming the worst about their actions and their intentions. And several times I was proved wrong. And God had to do a work in my heart. So I would learn to assume the best and see the good in their actions and their intentions. Looking for the good applies to our self-talk too. Are we focusing on all the things we get wrong or can we celebrate our wins, however small they may feel to us? Now when it comes to the news, just a few little tips I want to encourage you. Turn off your notifications, I did this this week. You don't need to hear about the terrible murder that happened wherever it was the minute it happens. You can wait. Um, to, to look when you're emotionally prepared to see that and look for, look for a good in that. Beware of confirmation bias. Don't just listen to sources that already agree with everything you already think. Beware of that. And finally, look for the helpers. This is from Fred Rogers, from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He taught a generation of kids. Look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. But Paul doesn't leave us with this. He wants us not only to look for the helpers, but to become the helpers. This is his second instruction. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Number one, look for the good. Number two, live out the good news. Put it into practice. In verse nine, Paul lists a very, it's a very comprehensive quartet of words. He says, whatever you've learned, received, heard, or seen in me. 
The second word, received, is a technical term that referred to what you received from the apostles, the core of the Christian message. Whatever you've received, the, the message that you've received, it's not enough to receive it. You have to practice it. In Greek culture, the highest phrase for a philosopher was that their words and their actions matched. And Paul is saying this is true of him. He's not shy to encourage them to follow his example or the example of others who are living out the good news. In the letter, Paul models what he's asking the Philippians to do, to look for the good. In chapter one, verse 12, he says, what has happened to me, i.e. being a prisoner, has actually served to advance the gospel. Because of his chains, others dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear, verse 14. Even when some are preaching from false motives, he says, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. He's modeling what he's asking them to do in looking for the good. Now, this may seem like an impossible standard, but Paul is not asking us to be perfect. In God's eyes, you are already perfect in Christ. Can I say it again? In God's eyes, you are already perfect in Christ. Too many of us have worries that we're missing something that will eventually result in us being excluded from God's future. That question has already been settled in Christ. Eternal life is in Jesus. It's not anything that you've done or you will do. Our future is secure. Paul's advice here is not about getting into heaven, it's about being a better human being on this earth. This is called discipleship. It's God's grace at work in our lives. Unless you've received God's grace, unless you know you're a full-fledged member of the family, you won't have the confidence you need to practice. If you ever attempted to learn another language, you'll know that this is true. It takes courage and confidence to speak like a toddler, doesn't it? You need conversation partners that won't laugh at you or speed you along or start speaking your native language in pity. Amazingly, we, most of us learn how to speak our native languages quite subconsciously but feeling safe and accepted matters. In one study, 65% of three-year-olds that had been removed from their home and were in uh, preschool from uh, the State Protection Agency, they had a language delay, 65%. You need that sense of acceptance and security in order to practice a language, in order to just try and, and say it and see how it goes and how people react and what's the response and experiment with it, practice it. It's been so fun listening to our kids learn to talk. Our one-year-old Eric says, I doed it, which makes sense. I do it, I doed it. Doesn't that make sense? The other day I said to Eleanor, our three-year-old, we're gonna make it. And she said, what are we gonna make? <laughs> Fair question. A new phrase Eric's been saying lately is, it too hard on me, it too hard on me. 
I love to hear them practice and delight in their grammatical attempts, however correct and incorrect. In fact, the incorrect ones are even more fun. Our one-year-old is right. There are many things that are now too hard on me. But practice is a hopeful word. Practice implies that the improvement comes in the attempting. Practice assumes you will get better at it the more you do it. We delight in our kids' language attempts, um, but being around people who are practicing can also be a little painful. And I'd like to invite Jessica up right now, Jessica Zaun, to the front. Jessica is a freshman at La Sierra Academy, and she has been playing the cello since she was six years old. And I've asked her to help us out today with first demonstrating for us if she could try and demonstrate how she used to sound when she was six years old. This is a challenge, but when she first started playing the cello, what would that sound like? Yep. So any parents out there who've heard their kids practicing lessons, you know it can be a painful experience. Or maybe you were the one practicing. You're like, I'm done with this. This is too painful. Um, it can be challenging, but we push through because we have the hope that one day, maybe all this terrible sounding stuff will actually turn into something beautiful. And so Jessica, if you could play something you enjoy playing now, years later. claim to be perfect, but he said he is practicing. And he encourages us to practice and look for other people who are practicing. Early in the letter of Philippians 3, verse 17, Paul says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Keep your eyes on those practicing the good news. In the book of Philippians, he mentions Timothy and Epaphroditus. Who do you look to as an example of someone practicing or living out the good news? In my own life, uh, it's been my grandfather. I'm writing a book about him, his life, his legacy, and how he's impacted my life. Who is it for you? And if no one comes to mind, can you imagine? What could you imagine uh, someone, a follower of Jesus that you would respect? What would they live like? What would they be like? And then when you face a difficult situation in your life, ask yourself, what would that follower of Jesus do in this situation? It can be really clarifying. When I was in the fourth grade, I joined a beginning orchestra. I had to pick an instrument, and my mother encouraged me 
to choose the viola. Perhaps she knew that it was a slightly lower register, so it'd be a little less painful for her ears for me to learn, learn to play the viola as opposed to the violin. Perhaps she also knew that violists are rare, which meant that even though I had never had private lessons, I played in groups from fourth grade all the way through college here at La Sierra, I never had private lessons, but I got to play into some pretty amazing orchestras because I played the viola. It's rare. And so I could do it, and I made it through the sore fingers and all those kind of things, and sadly, my viola only comes out at Christmas time, perhaps, but it's been a couple years, so I'm currently not practicing. But I have wonderful memories of what it was like to play in orchestras, play the viola. There was a part that was missing without me. There will be a part that's missing without you. Three years ago, Woody and his six-year-old daughter, Luna, were watching the news. They lived in Colorado, but they were watching news from California, Paradise, California, to be exact, and they saw the campfire burning. They saw 11,000 homes destroyed, several hundred of them destroyed during Thanksgiving week three years ago. Then Woody got an idea. What if they found an RV and delivered it to one of those families so they could have a home for Christmas? Wouldn't that be amazing? Woody asked Luna what she thought, and Luna said, six-year-old Luna said, God and Santa Claus would be really proud of us for this. <laughs> so they launched a GoFundMe campaign to finance the RV, and the two, two ended up being able to purchase it with the GoFundMe campaign, and they dropped it off to a family for Christmas. Since that first RV, more and more people heard about what they were doing, and they have delivered motorhomes and RVs to 95 families that lost their homes in fires in California. Isn't that amazing? They have another 100 families on their waiting list. 100 families who three years later or two years later from the recent wildfires have not been able to find a permanent place to live and are sleeping on people's couches and all sorts of different places. They are practicing peace, practicing peace. If you wanna hear more of their story or make a donation or you have an RV in your backyard, hi, hi. Who knows? Go to www.emergencyrv.org and you can connect that RV or that cash with a family that needs a place to stay. Earlier uh, in, in, this, uh, in this series, as we've been practicing peace, last Sabbath when Devo preached, he shared that Paul promised that the peace of God would guard you. The peace of God would guard your hearts and minds. We're gonna sing about that really soon. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. And now, here's Paul's promise. He says, when you look for the good, when you look for the good, wherever you find it, in anything around you, when you look for the good, and then when you live out the good news, when you're not afraid to practice it and try and experiment, then 
the God of peace will be with you. Not just the peace of God, but the God of peace will be with you. You won't be doing this alone. You won't be doing this alone. The other day, I was on a walk with the kids. They both like to sit in the stroller now. It's a one-kid stroller, but they're both sitting in the stroller, and they're pushing 60 pounds together with the two of them, and there's a big hill going up to our house. So I'm pushing them up the hill, up the stroller, and I started complaining. I said, you know, it's hard to push you guys both in the stroller up the hill. And without missing a beat, our three-year-old Eleanor says, don't worry, Mama, God is with you. Sometimes I need someone who gets fixated on the death of God to remind me that God is alive. God is with you. God is near. God is here. And the God of peace will be with you too. Amen.